got into a stage where I would throw something. And I got called all sorts, called a dirty paedophile. I got called the C word. I got called filth. I was hit, punched, kicked. I wanted to end the pain. I wanted to end it. I just I remember just putting my head to, to, to one side, looking at my mum with tears in my eyes. And now the situation was, this is the beginning of the end. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you are the author of From a Broken Mind. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> for, the, for those listening who haven't read the book yet, what is roughly, we're going to get into a bit more detail yeah. today, but what is roughly the book about? It's concerning my life and how it constructed into where it ended, as I was saying, in the 50s, falling into depression. Um, and all the mental health issues that come with it, all its weaponry and stuff. So it was a culmination and a build-up of everything. But in that, more importantly, was the realisation of the effects of my past. So, um, yeah, that's that's where the book, that's, that's the travel line of the book. And what was your what was your motivation behind behind writing the book? I've always wanted to write a book. Um, ever since I was a teenager, I've always wanted to write a book. I, I used to love reading. As well as all my sports and everything, I used to love reading. And um, I've gotten up, got quite a few old original books that I read back in the day in the 70s. And um, so I took it from there that I wanted to write a book. Um, and I, I started on a few occasions and never really got into it. Never trusted myself or believed in the writing or the book I was, I was writing, so I gave up. And it wasn't until what happened to me happened to me a few years ago that I had a reason to write a book. And it's not just writing a book about myself, it was writing a book to help others. So it's a lot of hints and tricks and things in that book. And that's book. what you do say about this book. It says, uh, on the cover, it says a real-life experience of desperation and the battle to survive. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's your story whilst you're not, you're not a trained therapist, you're not... Um, a mental health expert, no. but you have been through it. It's experience, and I think sometimes being going through that experience and coming out the other side and f- feeling everything involved in it is just as powerful and just as helpful as someone who has read textbooks, gone to university, and done degrees, etc., etc. Um, the only thing is, I haven't got the qualifications. I've got the qualifications of life, yeah. <laughs> if that counts. <laughs> Um, so yeah, the experience that I gained going through that and understanding what I was going through and the realization of absolutely everything, I believe has helped me to understand me a lot better, which helps me to understand other people's situations a lot better as well. For those who are listening, um, we will be reading extracts from the book. So if you haven't read the book yet, there are some spoilers, but, um, and obviously those who have read the book, um, will, will know what we're talking about, but you do cover majority of your life because you genuinely believe that there were elements of almost every stage of your life that have contributed to the to the negative experience yeah uh, you start with with schooling yeah it's 70s quite quite <laughs> a young age um 12 13 yeah yeah i'll say so onwards yeah. what, was, what was schooling like you? <sighs> schooling was a mixed bag i mean i i, I I never played, I played truant once, I got caught <laughs> by my mum. <laughs> but I never, I never really bunked school, I never, I never mucked about, I, I used to quite enjoy school. I wasn't academically great, um, and the book explains that in some detail, um, as far as 
concentration levels. <laughs> um, and the only parts of school that I really, really enjoyed were either break time, PE in sport, and, and English to a certain extent, I would, uh, and art. I used to love art. But everything else, pff, I had no interest. My concentration levels were at a low. And I'd often be snapped out of it by a teacher throwing a piece of chalk or saying at me, Wake up, Cowley! <laughs> this is the 70s before anyone Yeah, exactly. This is the 70s, 70s where corporal punishment existed. Um, where you got the cane or the, or even the slipper at primary school, you know. So, um, yeah, uh, schooling for me was enjoyable in part, painful in a lot of other areas, which is explained in the book. And, um, um, and, for me, I would say quite foggy. If if a lesson didn't interest me, or say I just disappeared into my own world, staring out the windows. You say you say painful. Obviously, in the book, you go into a little bit more detail. Mm. Um, what what specifically did you find quite painful? I don't know. I went from I went from quite innocent at school, quite just going through the motions, enjoying being with friends and having a laugh and. You know, and then all of a sudden, for some unknown reason, I started getting attacked and bullied. And it was always individual. It was always like three or four of them on, on one. And I thought it was just me, you know, why me? And thing, things would happen and it was quite nasty. I thought one day my fingers were going to break because as two of them held me and the other one um, pulled my fingers back so far. I thought my wrist and my things were going to break. And all the time they were laughing and joking. And I fell to the floor. And as I fell to the floor, I just remember being kicked. And this went on for quite some time. And it was back in the day where if you grasped, things got worse. Yeah. If you grasped, you were seen as weak and people would laugh at you. So it was, it was, I held it in for a long time. And it wasn't until recently when I, uh, when I was doing all this on social media, putting out that mental health, my book and, and, and t- talking to people that someone from my school opened up to me and said, if you're talking about these people, I went through the same. And I had no idea. No idea. And we were friends. But that, that was the, that was the, um, idea back then, wasn't it? That was the belief that you don't talk about, you don't talk about. How, especially for boys for men, you don't talk about how you're feeling. If with anything. Yeah. Not just bullying, with anything. Emotions, um, home life, whatever's affecting you, you did not talk. You didn't hang your dirty washing out on the line, you know, and, um, it was, you, you know, and even if you did mention saying, oh, chin, you know, chin up. Yeah. You know, chest out, mate. Suck it up. You're a man. Be a man. You know, and I think the old school way of thinking still exists today as well. It's, it's slowly, it's slowly breaking down. It's slowly, it's slowly getting better. Um, and there's a bit more understanding there, but I think there's still a stigma about a man crying or a man not being strong. Yeah. And I think there's, um, there's confusion with the word strength. And there is a, there is a massive strength of character within somebody to carry a lot of burden with them and carry on and keep going and doing the right thing. While suffering, there's a lot of strength in that. Yeah. And I think if people grabbed onto that strength, rather than seeing it as a weakness, if people grabbed onto that strength, there might be better outcomes. There will be, um, like you say, yeah, the, the better results for them in the end. With with your bullying, 
Um, in the 70s, there's no internet. There's no, there might have been internet. There's no social media. Nothing, nothing specifically. There's nothing. No. Three channels on the, on the telly. The, the, um, the, the, the social media was talking to yeah. each other. That was it. So when, when it comes to the bullying side of things, for those who are listening now of, of the younger generation, this is the equivalent of, of online trolling now. Mm. Uh, and oh. all that sort of, do you think you're more exposed to it now or more exposed to it back in the 70s? It's different levels, isn't it? I mean, it was more, I think, I think trolling and, and um, bullying, for want of a better word, was more in your face and braver. Brazen, I think is a better word. Yeah. yeah, more brazen, not braver, more brazen. It was in your face and you knew your assailants. I think I think trolling and social on social media today is a lot more dangerous because you don't know who you're dealing with. You can't see who you're dealing with. You don't know the person, and they have ways and means of getting into your life. Where these people back in the seventies, eighties, nineties, the only way into their life was actually physically seeing you, and they had to deal with you. hunting you down. These these people today will hunt you down on social media. And they'll find ways to get into you, you know, into your social media accounts. Block them, but they can just create another account. Yeah, exactly that. And that, that goes on from there. So going back to um, the, the schooling, the painfulness. So with your home life, would you speak about it to your parents? Was there a stage you didn't open <coughs> up, or, or maybe even to, to their teachers? You know, we touched on the, the idea of being a grass if you did speak about it. No, you had to bottle it. I mean, like, I mean, I remember. But, I remember walking home from school and where I lived, there was a massive plant field where I lived. And um, I remember walking across that to get home and I, I was jumped by two or three lads and I can see it now. And I, I was hit, punched, kicked. And this is in front of the, the estate. Uh, and my friends were there and I and no, no one intervened because didn't, no one didn't want to get involved and no one didn't want to get hurt or have any repercussions. I went home. My mum saw what happened and was just on her way down. And uh, she met me at the bottom of that stairs. We lived in a three-story flat. And um, she said, what was that about? And uh, I had a football. And I said, oh, they just wanted my ball. I, didn't, I could not say what these People keep attacking me because she would have gone round the house, had a row with the parents. Then it would have got worse. Yeah. So they said, "Oh, he's just playing." I said, "Well, not really playing, but yeah, it's just." And they said, "Oh, just boy stuff then." Brushing it off. Yeah. Yeah. So my mum did. So I'm not going to say my mum didn't show concern. She did show concerns, but it didn't matter what I said. The outcome would have been worse. Yeah. In the, in the in the effect that um, is that do you still believe that today? Or yeah, is yeah, that yeah. in your mind then as, as a young? No, nah, I still believe that today. I, still, I think people still live in fear that they will make things worse by talking out about bullying, and um, especially if it's face to face. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I can't even remember when it stopped. I think it had stopped when I left school. Nothing really, because people just went their own separate ways with work and colleges and, yeah. and whatever they met new friends. So I think I think it, it it just seemed to stop. It was really weird, really peculiar. Would you think quite um, significantly it had an effect on later years? So when you did go through your negative mental health experience, do you think that there was elements that started kind of building? At the age of 12 or 13. Yeah. Although I was a fun-loving child, I mean, I, I just loved playing. 
Yeah. You know, just normal boy stuff, yeah. playing, climbing trees, building camps, you know, playing football, um, riding your bikes and yeah. just normal boy stuff, you know, yeah. harmless stuff, having a laugh, going over the woods and whatever, you know. Um, but going through bullying kind of made me go insular, but also really angry. Yeah. And I would have outbursts. And oh, sometimes with the wrong people. So um, someone might say something and I'm, I might throw something or I might lash out um, or, or even run off crying. Cause it, it made the, the, the intensity of the bullying made me quite unstable. Okay. Is that at the time or? At the time. Um, I think at the time I thought I was dealing with it, but the realisation, which I was talking about earlier, yeah. the realisation was, I think, that it may be unstable going through it and then coming out of it and then later on in life. It, it made me angry for many, many years without me knowing it was that, part, well, partly that. So would you would you say that the bullies had a part to play in yeah. what happened later in life? Yeah. And do you think that, thinking about it now, if you sat down with them around the table and you told them that, because they're between the ages of 12 and 16, it's a full year, quite a four-year full-on period of school, mm. that they would sit there and it would be utter dread, or do you think...? I think they'd be shocked. I don't think they'd even remember me. Yeah. Because it's not that. And that's the issue, isn't it? It's yeah. not necessarily you specifically they're targeting in terms of today we're going to make Rick's life a living hell because we wanted to live in hell for the rest of his life. Yeah. It's, it's they want the power. Yeah. So yeah. for somebody who is going through bullying now, who's listening, potentially they are experiencing bullying, whether it be an adult or someone younger, what would you say is probably the best approach for them to take kind of immediately? <sighs> find support. Absolutely. Yeah, find, find support, open up. To, with, with absolutely everything that we're going to talk about today, the common factor within everything is talking. Don't be afraid to open up to someone you trust, whether it's in your circle or outside of your circle. You, I, I, I trusted a person outside of my circle, um, and which we'll talk about later yeah. on. Um, when I talk about circle, I mean close circle of friends. So there are people that you know that are not in that circle, colleagues, you know, whatever. Um, and if you can find that one person you can relate to who will think will understand your circumstances um, and talk to them and open up and say, look, I've got this issue, then the power of one becomes the power of two. They might bring someone else in who can help. Yeah. yeah and so, so you're branching out and all of a sudden you've got this network of help. And I'm not saying you're going to find resolution straight away, but you can build on things. So talking, absolutely talking, find that one person you can talk to. So through the podcast, we are going to talk about the experiences you went through in life that kind of, that we had done with, with the schooling. That are going to bring us to eventually yeah. um, what, what you went through. But let's stay on that open up and talking. So there was at one point, probably one of the, the most deepest points that you thought in your mind, I need to let someone know. What what was the what was you thinking at the time? What was what made you kind of reach out to that one person to essentially begin your road to to, to get it better? Um, realization that I was going to cause myself some harm, and that's physical harm. Yeah, literally. And ser- I mean, I'm talking. Well, we're talking suicide. Yeah. So. <clears throat> 
the the actual breakdown which I'll be getting to later on. Um the the the, the build up and the sensation within the mind and the body is just like a, a bomb going off. And every everything it's really hard to explain Kurt because emotionally it's devastating. Trying to deal with it is so difficult. Uh and and all of a sudden you I it's not the same for everybody, but I just snapped and it, all these emotions just come out and I was on my own at the time. Um so <sighs> So talk us through you're you're in bed, are you sitting on the sofa? What, what's the what's the for, for the actual breakdown? For the yeah, when 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 you first tell someone, when you make that first Okay. Step. So for me the, I realised I was in trouble. Yeah. Okay, so I I opened up to someone who was my boss via email. So you haven't got to talk. It could be a message. And <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll tell you the story. I was driving to work. Um, the sun was just coming up over the fields. It's such a vivid memory for me. And I was driving driving up this hill and... I could feel tension. I felt it for weeks, but the past couple of days running up to this, I was, I could feel it even stronger, like very powerful. And then all of a sudden I just burst out. I just screamed. It was a scream in a car, like a right shout. And I had to pull over, which I did. And I just cried. I just pulled out crying. And the pain, the, the hurt and the, my soul just felt empty. You know, my whole body just felt empty of life. I just felt useless and worthless. And um, I gathered myself after about 10, 15 minutes. I calmed myself down, carried on driving to work because you have to carry on because you're a man, you know. And um, I got to work. I opened up, got to my office and sat there thinking, I can't do this. I've got to, I can't carry on the way I am. And you've got to... You've got to you, as the timeline of the book goes, this was central, but it wasn't the be- it, I would say it was the beginning of the end, but things got worse before I got better. So it was essentially the start to, 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 to the recovery. But like you say, it does get worse before it does well, get better. For me, it got worse before it got yeah. better because I dealt with it for so many years. So, so many years. And, um, so I wrote an email, which is in the book. And, and is this at home or is this at... This is at work. Is sat at my desk at work. And I wrote an email to my boss. And um sat there pondering for some time. Should I send it? Should I send it? Now I'm in the building on my own. Waiting for the stuff to come in. And um no, I can't. I mean, this is embarrassing. This is ridiculous, you know? And I thought, no, you've got to. You've it's, actually got to. So to stop there, when you say it's embarrassing, it's ridiculous, is that... You sending the email or you having those feelings, you haven't, you, you've all of it, you all of it. Yeah. Embarrassed myself, embarrassed the people uh, about the whole situation, worried what people would think. Um, and cause they, you got to, when you're bottling this up, when you're hiding it, people think you're a different person. Yeah. They don't see inwardly what's going on. Well, you refer to it in the book as, as the mask. As the mask. And we're going to get on to that shortly, what, what the mask is into a bit more detail. Yeah. But you do refer to that as the mask that people are putting on yeah. to, to kind of represent these different persons. But the pe- people don't put it on. Uh, the mental health, especially, you know, when you look at depression, they, they, it, it 
puts you in that situation. It gives you the mask. It puts the mask on you. I, I saw, I saw depression as, um, as a being in the end. I saw it as an alien infiltrating the mind, um, breaking down little fragments of the mind bit at a time, bit at a time, slowly, progressively taking over until you get to the point where you're desperate. And all the while, you're outwardly, you're smiling, you're doing your job, you're doing your house, you're doing whatever needs to be doing at home, you know, relationships and things like that. But inwardly, depression is telling you it's taking over. Yeah. It's slowly taking over. But you don't really, I didn't realise it at first. But outwardly, it's, you're not showing that, you're not projecting that. So the mask you wear isn't a mask you put on it's a mask i i always say this it's a mask of depression forces you to wear it wants to hide behind the mask whilst it destroys you slowly and then when it gets to a point which it did that day everything just shatters so you you've now sent a message to your boss what, what's then what happens next uh i worry <laughs> i'll worry about the response um, and it wasn't long before my boss came in and we, 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 um, he called me into his office and what I thought would be like a 15, 20 minute chat turned out to be a two hour conversation. And he was the person outside of my small circle, although, as I said before, small circle of friends, family, then he got your colleagues, then, then yeah. whatever else on the outside of that. So he was borderline circle to colleagues yeah for borderline friends we got on really well yeah you know he employed me he took me on to run the warehouse inside of it and um he just let me run with it he trusted me and i think that's where my trust in him grew over over the period of time because he trusted me and left me alone to get on with the job so i thought maybe i should be able to trust him and he's outside of my circle of friends yeah. at the time. So I'm trusting him with all this information to stay with him. And from, from there, he, he made some phone calls. He gave some, you know, gave me some information and, um, the road to recovery started there. And you, you didn't take into our work at this point. You're still going into work. Yeah. What, what, what was the day to day like for you? Were you, comfortable going into work no i was struggling i was still doing i was still hitting targets don't get me wrong i was still doing my job but day by day by day things were getting worse until one day when i did have a breakdown i couldn't <laughs> make some easy figures match up and i was getting frustrated and angry and and this was in front of the assistant manager and i i basically broke down in front of her she took me to my office and she told me that I'd need to go home and I said no. And then, and then I realized that I was just going to be too disruptive, not just for me, but for everybody else. So we agreed that I would go home and we walked out as if we was having a chat. Um, but I couldn't look at anyone. My face was down. My, you know, I couldn't look at any of my colleagues whatsoever. And we walked out. I got in my car and came home and just crashed on the sofa. So until this point, obviously, we're going to get into the, the, what's built up to that yeah. beforehand. Um, but at this point, you, you, like you say, it's taken over you. You feel like it's taken over mm. you. Um, work is probably one of the only things that you potentially 
have been able to control up until mm-hmm. this point. Yeah. Does stepping back from work, even though the long term it proves to be better for you and what was needed, do you think it removes some self, um, not, not worth, but kind of control? Yeah. I, I think, oh, that was a good, that's a good question actually, because at work, you had targets to reach every day. You had a reason to keep going. Yeah. There was a reason there. Yes, your home life, you had a reason. You've got your family. You've got people around you. But at work, if you didn't do it, then you weren't going to do it. They'll find yeah. someone else to do it. So you had to do it. You couldn't be complacent. And um, and it it sounds weird to say because it makes me sound like oh, but you can be complacent at home. I think you can be a little more relaxed at home. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. It's, different, it's completely it's, different scenario, yeah. isn't it? So at work, you have to be on the ball all the time, and um, it does give you a sense of strength, and it does give you a sense of being in control. But when something's eating away at you all the time, you start making mistakes. You start missing things. And this is what was occurring. And as hard, and the harder I tried, the worse it got. It was so it was taken over now. I think it was a few days after that email, actually, that this happened. So I still was going in. And even though my boss at the time, at the time of that email and the discussion said, I think you should have time off, I refused. To my detriment. I should have taken that time off because, I sh- yeah, I should have taken that time off for a pure and simple reason to give myself time to breathe. He did say that he'll come round, he'll give me stuff, he'll give me information, he'll tell us where we're going with this. Um, but maybe I saw, as you say, I saw the job as something to hold on to. Yeah. You know? It Maybe it would have taken you to, to make that decision yourself for it to become acceptable in your mind. Yeah, someone else telling you to do it. Exactly that, a man thing. Yeah, <laughs> the, 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 yeah, having <clears throat> control. Like, no, no, I've made a decision, not you. Yeah. Um. So I do want to get on to uh, the mask because I feel like there's a lot of stuff we're talking about where, like you said before, you don't necessarily put it on. It's just there for when you need it to be there. Mm. So in your book, so this is from page thirty-one. Uh, you reference um the mask uh and kind of how how you kind of maybe first realised it was there mm. or your first acknowledgement of of when it kind of came up. You said, I didn't notice anything at first. In fact, I didn't notice anything for a few years, but I had adorned that mask way before I had any issues. Mm. So when you first realise that you're, you are becoming this other person who isn't how you're feeling on the inside, how does that make you feel to start with? For me, it was the anger issues, the frustrations, the all, all the emotions. Whereas before that, I was just easy going. I was a laugh. I was easy going. I was helpful. I was loving. I was kind. I was friendly. Um, and then slowly, slowly, so again, this is going back to teenage years as well, yeah. Slowly over all that time, because of certain things that I, that we'll get into, happened. My emotions and my anger and frustrations got worse because of situations. But there wasn't a time when I thought I'm depressed or um, or I'm wearing a mask. I thought this was the new me. 
What I learned to do after many years was to have my anger moment, to have my uh, frustrations and, and whatever, and then be happy me again. So I've been two different people. And were those two different people known to people? Were they? Oh like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. why do you like this? Yeah. You know, why why'd you do that? Do what? You know, and I'll get into arguments. Do what? And then the anger will come out again. Why are you questioning me? This is me. This is who I am. But it wasn't. When I talk like that, this is depression. Go, go on, son. Yeah. Go on, give it some. Protecting itself. Right? Yeah. This is working. This is working. I'm just, just feed me some more angst that I can react to. If it's if you react in the opposite way, and you end up talking, do you think depression then gets not removed, but it gets broken down? Of course, I, 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 I don't know to be honest, mate. I, I, I think what we, I think. I think depression, if, if you've got issues inside that you're not dealing with, whether it's one or 20, and you're not dealing with them, and they're affecting you so much that it's causing you outbursts or feeling worthless, um, I don't think it matters what you do. Depression will find another way to infiltrate you, to break another fragment of your mind away um, until you actually deal with what is going on. Depression will always work its way around the avenues of your mind and take little bits out. Was there any point um, at any of those moments that you thought, I shouldn't have behaved like that? All the time. I feel gutted of things I've done. Uh, so Not at the, time. at the time. No, no, no. That was me. They're wrong. They're wrong. And yeah. even on reflection, at the, say, say, and if they also after it happened. Yeah. I mean, I'm still- talking... Three, four years later, that was, that was wrong. It was me. I was right. How dare they say that? How dare I, you know, test me? How dare, you know, how dare they question my personality? How dare, how dare they question me? How dare, how dare they question what I'm doing and what I'm saying? I'm right. You know, they're wrong. But looking at it now, I'm just unbelievably embarrassed by the way I've treated some people or spoken to some people and gutted, actually gutted. That um that I've been in a been a certain way with people, you know, manners. I was always brought up to have good manners, pleases and thank yous, and um and show respect. And I and even doing the things I was saying and doing, I always still consider myself to be very well mannered and respectful, even during, though during those times, yeah, even though. You know, I could be having a complete and utter innocent laugh with somebody and they say something and then it'll be boom. Yeah. And all sorts will kick off. I'm but, talking fight and I'm talking verbal. But it is human emotion. You, people can have emotions you can react bad. So <coughs> there are certain levels which I think you acknowledge you maybe yeah, seen That's exactly it, Kurt. You know, it's exactly it. It's levels, you know, and, and the pressures of what is going on in circumstances. If, if you've talked work... You could be happily enjoying work for a couple of days and all of a sudden things happen. All of a sudden you're in two or three days of stress yeah. and the whole persona changes. But that ends and then you're at the other side. What I'm talking about is when it's ongoing because of circumstances. Yeah, so things have happened in your life that have affected you that you've not dealt with. How do you deal with that now? So now, now that you've been through the experience you've been through, if you have something in your mind that you weren't happy with and it's just niggling away at you. And then for some reason, maybe a week later, uh, someone says something to you and you retaliate in a way that probably was unnecessary. Mm. How would you deal with that now? 
or would you not retaliate like that anymore? It's difficult because some, sometimes I, I take a moment to breathe and think about it logically and have a, a conversation. Yeah. Um, sometimes when you're in the middle of something that's very, very stressful, you can snap yeah. and say something um, derogatory, but then pull yourself back and actually go, sorry, mate, I yeah. didn't mean that. It's been a tough day, you know. I mean, for everyone, Which everyone, that's normal. Yeah. Life is hard. Yes, that's normal. But it's when you're dealing with, and I will emphasize it again and again, when you're dealing with things in your mind, whether it's regrets, hate, um, whatever, and you're not dealing with them, yeah, that's when it builds. But then you're dealing with life's normal stresses on top of that. It's like a, the old analogy with a snowball gathering yeah. as it goes downhill. And um, and that is it. You have to deal with things. You have to sort things out um, to the best of your abilities, to the best of the abilities of people around you. You have to deal with situations. Gathering everything as you go through life can only be destructive to yourself because you're also dealing with normal life bills. Yeah. Take to take today's situation with the bills going up, power, you know, the power and everything else. <clears throat> people are now concerned about that. Now, you take that and that's someone with mental health issues. How far does that push them further into destroying themselves? So you have to deal with things. How do you think the the emotion side, so the frustration, the anger side, when when it comes to that, then ends up with a potential situation you're in of of suicide? How, How does someone's outburst of anger, how can that lead on through through the experiences? For me, it turned into silence. Um, I because it, dealing with depression makes you feel worthless, makes you feel like you're useless. There's no point of you. What is the point of me? What is the point? And that's depression telling you there's no point of you. What what, what are you going to do about it? And it, and many people, if if they if they're honest with themselves, they will admit they will consider. Suicide is the way out. But then again, what is after suicide? Depression just moves on to somebody else. You know, what is after suicide? There's nothing other than the destruction you've left behind. Your loved ones, your friends, your family, work colleagues, you know, people that care about you. We need to have facts. We can't. We can't bubble wrap depression. We can't bubble wrap suicide. You've. You've done yourself. So all I, all I will say at this moment is I'll encourage anybody who is suffering to talk. Please talk. This book is, you'd admit, this book can be quite brutal. Yes. Yeah. But it's honestly brutal. And it's, it had to be that way because I wanted to get the message across. You know, it, 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 you see so many memes on Instagram, so many, um, influence on social, influences on social media saying, uh, forget your past, forget this, forget that, move on. And, and, and you, you hear people, I don't know if you should name check, but someone like Tony Robbins giving these massive speeches about your past and how you, you can't just move on from your past. You, you may think that you've dealt with it and you've moved on and your life is happy and rosy again and then a memory will hit you and the chances are it might bring you down. 
what I, what I do is I'll just let it happen. I will think about an incident where I was bullied, where I had five bucks put, put out of my arm. And I'd say, I'll let it, I'll let the image happen. I can see it now, but it's not bothering me. Yeah. I haven't forgotten about it. I've just learned to not allow it to bother me. Yeah. I'll let the emotion happen. I'll let it go. I move on. I evolve. And that is it. It is the realization of it is the past. So forgetting about it, it's going to achieve nothing, but accepting it and the acknowledging that you can't change it now is, is what's going to help you kind of move forward. With it. Exactly that. Exactly that. You will never forget your past. I don't know. Maybe some people with some kind of magical mindfulness mindset can. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I can't imagine not forgetting my past. Would I want to? I don't think I would want to. I want it to be a lesson now. So talking about your past, um, there is obviously the, the book is with although it has hints and, and, and tips on how to deal with depression, it does go through your your life story up until now, really mm. the pivotal moments which have been um, very contributional to what you went through. Mm. Um, and there is um, an area in the book where you cover three topics. Yeah. I'd say in a relatively small space, but you've done it. The reason why I want to bring it up is because you've done it so so elegantly, so well. Yeah. And this is the first bit, book you've ever written. Oh yeah. And um, also, you said you liked English when you was, was younger in school. I'm not, I'm not calling out your age here, but that was a few years back. That was a few decades. Ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then, then again, if we go back now, I mean, say 14 years old, 40, 40 years ago. You know. Yeah. I mean. We'd get homework for English, and they'll say, "Right, write a five hundred word essay." I'll do one thousand five hundred words. So it was always, it's always kind of been there for you, and it's always been. Uh, Interesting. There were because the, these three moments. We, we're going to stop as I'm going to read now again from the book, and we're going to stop and we're going to dissect what I'm about to read through a bit. Okay. Um, these are three experiences you went through, in mm. life, which are very, uh, as I said, they, they contributed a lot. I'd say to um, what you went through. So, so the first one. Uh, starts with, this is page 26, it starts with, when I talk about fumbling and stumbling, you could consider the next thing to be a world-class event. I got married incredibly young. I was just 21. Yeah, I know. By the time I was 24, we had two boys. Just them. So at that point, you're a, a two, uh, 24 years old, two boys and married. The, the, the remarks kind of you make to yourself just don't. What, what is that for you? Do you think it was too soon? Do you think it happened too quickly? Or... Again, it was a situation where I knew best. People were telling me, this is wrong, Rick, you need to live a life, you know. Yeah, yeah have a girlfriend and go, go on holiday, go and enjoy yourselves. But it didn't happen that way. I knew best. Um, yeah, we got, we got pregnant, or she got pregnant, and I'd, I'd done the right thing in brackets. Yeah. You know, married her. And um, to be the man. You know, to take ownership of the situation. I should have trusted the. Um, I should have. I should have trusted precautions. Myself, yeah, taking that, taking that myself rather than relying on somebody else. So. Yeah. I caught myself out there. I think instead of. Meeting someone and going on holidays and having a good time, going clubbing and all the rest of it. I became a, a very young parent. And there's a lot more to that story. Um, 
when she started talking about leaving um, and going off, I always said to her that I would have the boys. There's no way she'd take the boys. And um, she did take the boys. She walked out one afternoon, one early evening, I think it was. And um, I contacted her overnight and I said, oh, I'm going to go to court. I want the boys. I want to make sure they're, they're good with me. Yeah. And um, the following morning, she brought them back. Said, there you go. And walked off. Literally like that. Well, what's going through your mind at that moment? Joy. Thank God. The boys are back. It's yeah. just the focus of having the boys yeah. back rather than... But angry at the fact that she was going back to somebody else. So the idea that I was being left because of me was a fabrication. So she planted that seed in my head. It was all my fault. Yeah. So I yeah. kind of... I, I think my mentality at the time, I think my anger issues at the time didn't help. Knowing that she wanted to leave me made me very angry, very upset. How would you let that out? I got into a stage where I would throw something. So whatever was at hand. And um, screaming and shouting. You felt, okay, maybe I am or not? No, I, no, I, I was good. I knew that I was good for the boys. I knew. Even though I had these issues, they were kind of like my little bit of salvation, my little bit yeah. of paradise, my little bit of life, joy. And um, I wanted to, I wanted to be their protector. I wanted to be their, their guidance in life. Yeah. Even though I had some wrong things going on, I knew that I had respect and manners enough to show them the right course. Rather than take the the wrong line. You say um, you were screwed up for a while. You was angry. And <coughs> quite a few tears were shed, especially yeah. at night. Yeah. But you had to get a grip of yourself for your sons. Mm. Yeah. Well, you can imagine. Uh, your first born, I was just about 22 years old. And then within three years, you've got two boys and your wife's left you. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's no joke. It, it's 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 serious stuff, and he's still very young. Yeah, he's still very young. I'll, in all seriousness, if you're having children from thirty years onwards, I would say, unless you've got a settled mind, unless you're settled in life, and you haven't, I'm talking from my perspective here. I don't think I did enough in life prior prior to settle down. And we'll get onto another story about that, which will prove that. Yeah. Because there was so much more I should have done and could have done, but didn't do. And now I was bringing up two children as a single parent at the age of 25. The, the book continues. It says, 18 months later, you met your second wife, who was also a single parent with a daughter. And you married in 1992, just two and a half years after your divorce. I think it's fair to say that I had turned out to be quite needy. I wanted company. Almost a year later, our son was born, followed by our daughter in 1996, quickly followed by me paying a visit to the hospital to have a snip. No more children. Yeah, exactly. So at this point, you've got four children, one stepdaughter. Yeah. So five in total. Yeah. Um, you, it's now 1996, so that would make you 32, 33? 
two ish year. Where's your mind at at this point? <laughs> I'm thinking I'm in a really good place. And um, although I've still got issues and anger management issues and I've still got all this stuff going on in my head and regrets um, from not doing things, I think I'm in a good place. I saw the relationship as a new start. So more children, <laughs> you know, and um, I don't regret the children. I don't honestly, but I do wish I had my children at an older age. Is that for, for your benefit or for theirs? For both. I think I've done as, I, I don't think I've done as best as I could for them. I think I've done the best I could for them in the mindset I was in. If I, if I'd had them, if my mindset was different and I'd had my, a, an older age, maybe I would, some things I would have been clearer of thought and see things a lot clearer um, and not be so reactive to certain situations Is there and get angry so quickly. in your mind that you're thinking of? That, that when, if you kind of think that I, I could have been better or there could have been a, a, a scenario where I reacted better, is there anything that kind of comes to mind? I think it would coming on from work and then finding that something simple like one of the boys has been in trouble at school. Yeah. And instead of sitting down and talking about it, I'll be off on one. Yeah. I've had a day at work. Why is this happening? Why have you done this? Why, why, why? And, you know, the poor lad's like 12 years old. He's 12 years old, you know. He's still learning. He's, he's still developing. His brain's still work, trying to work out life. And um, instead of sitting down and saying, tell me about it. Yeah. I'll just go off on one because I might have had a bad day at work. And that's been a forever thing with parents, hasn't it? Yeah. You know, you've had a bad day at work, you come home, something happens and you react. You take it out on them rather than the situation. Was there a point where you did did a, a situation like that and you thought, I should have done that? Yeah, of course. Of course, you walk away regretting what you said. Um, and I, I can't remember a time where I gave him a hug afterwards to say sorry. And that's regretful. Do you think if they were sitting here today with us that they would bring up that? Or do you think they'd bring up the, the points of a single dad who <coughs> on them? That's what we're talking about your two of his boys here. <coughs> who did everything he could or, or show he would do everything he could to get us back, which he got us back and then Gave us. I've had a discussion with both my boys about the past. One of them has said it was a situation, you know, yeah. we understand. We love you so much, Dad. You know, you've done as best as you could under circumstances and wherever, wherever Dad would have walked out and gone. Yeah. The other son said, I'm glad you recognise that. Yeah. So I've got one son that's kind of protecting me and beefing me up and the other son who's been direct saying I'm glad you recognise that dad and I love you for it Yeah. so both both scenarios make me feel better about it because I wanted to tell them this was after I came out of depression this is after all of my realisations I wanted to tell them both that I was regretful and sor- sorry for the way I sometimes spoke reacted and how I didn't listen sometimes. I took the point of view of the teacher, of whoever. 
I never really truly listened to you. And so I say never, that's that's not quite true, but more often more often than not. Um but for my sons to recognise it, but one to say it's okay that I get it, and the other one to say, I'm glad you realise and but I'm so pleased that um no, I'm so pleased I'm so pleased you recognise it, but I'm love you so much. Yeah. Is is nice, you know. So that kind of made me feel a lot more at ease, but it's still I still remember my anger snapping rather than listening. Are there situations today that you would think, Wow, twenty years ago I would have reacted so differently? Mm. As in, if something would happen today? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I, if you take me as I am now, recovered, if you take me as I am now and put me back into the situation where my boys are little or growing up teenagers, I would be so much different. Yeah, I was loving. I was caring. I was protective. But I needed to be a little more understanding. I needed to understand them rather than try and fight my demons. Do you think that if you are how you are today back then, do you go through the negative mental health experience? I think there's still factors in the past that are still I'm still dealing with. Yeah. The two main contributors are the first one you spoke about. There is another one, a regret about Australia, which I'm kind of like, it still plays on my mind, my mind somewhat. Yeah. Um, and the other one, I think we're going to get onto in a minute. Yeah. Um, but this is after, this is after what I'm talking about. So the contributions before that are still, if, if they're not there, I'm a different person. If they're not there and the next scenario happens, I might be, might be dealing with it a lot better. It's all this and buts, isn't it? So if I'm as I am today now sitting here with you, back in the eighties and nineties, noughties, um I'm a better thoughtful, considerate, understanding person. So the next scenario, as you kind of referenced, um, is in the same year as your daughter was born, your youngest, um, in nineteen ninety six. So the book continues. In 1998, my brother, aged 29, who was also my best friend, suddenly collapsed and died from a heart attack outside my parents' house. This was the worst day of my lives, of our lives. It came with no warning. It was horrendous and devastating. It affected me big time. And I had become a messed up emotional wreck for a while. It was at this time that I found that I had another brother. Two huge moments at that point. Um, we're, we're going to deal with the other brother after because there is a little bit of follows on from that. But your brother, 29 years old, how were you dealing with that? Badly, badly. He was, <clears throat> I'd consider him at the time my best friend. We was, we, we used to go football together. We played in the same football team together, my football team. He was my goalkeeper. He would come around every Wednesday. That was our night. Um, 
he'd read stories to the children at, for their bedtime. She'd go upstairs and read them a story whilst I was sorting things out. We'll come down and we'll play the old Sega Master System football games. And um, just have a giggle, just have a laugh. And then, 10 o'clock I think it was, we'd put on the midweek sports special, as it was back then. Watch highlights of football or sports. And, um, yeah, we was close, really, really close. And I remember one night he came round. He had this nasty, nasty cough. And uh, I said to him, you need to get that looked at. It was proper chesty and gurgly. I said, you need to get that looked at, mate. He goes, yeah, yeah, I will, and drove home. That was on the Wednesday. On the Sunday, I got a call from my dad saying, um, you need to get to the hospital. Um, it's your brother. And my my whole soul just dropped because I had a horrible feeling that this is not good. And I jumped into the car <clears throat> and... Me and my wife, we drove to the hospital, and as we pulled in, uh, a neighbour friend of ours was standing outside looking at us, and he had tears in his eyes, and I was like, no, 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 and panic, sheer panic just filled me, and um, I went running into the hospital, family, mum and dad, broken, completely broken. And I just, I remember just putting my head to, to, to one side, looking at my mum with tears in my eyes and, um, being told my brother died. And I was numb, just numb. I just couldn't believe it. And I got shown into where he was laying and he, he just looked grey. He just looked horrible. And I gave him a kiss on my forehead and hugged him and he was cold. I remember him just being so cold. And I took, I came out of the room and I just held my mum. And I remember my wife giving my dad a cuddle and I've never seen my dad cry. Never. Tough as nails. And, um, it, the whole scenario was in, was in, uh, was just in this room and it was just emotionally draining that everything was just like, can't explain it properly. There's no words to explain it other than being rubbish, just horrible rubbish, just not real. How how do you how do you deal with that after? So you you've got five five children living at home as well, um, married. What what's going through your mind at this point? What, where is where is your mind at? Nowhere. I mean, no man's land. There's nothing existed. I'm, I'm laying on a sofa, just crying, broken down feeling numb uh, I didn't go to work for a week work phoned me up and said you've got to come in you, you can't you can't carry on like this you've got to come in and then this is the 90s <clears throat> and I just felt like my life had been ripped apart you know when you when you're that close with somebody and they're gone you know imagine as a parent you're at your kitchen window, you've got your front lawn in front of you, and um, your son is going to his car, he's going out, and then he just collapses on the grass for apparent no reason. One of the neighbours is resuscitating. The ambulance crew turns up, rushes into hospital where he dies. Imagine as a parent witnessing that. You never, it never ever leaves you. And... Um, 
where I'm at, I've got the I've got the vision of what my mum and dad had to see and witness. And I didn't witness it. Um and feeling sorry for them. But also crying for my brother because twenty nine years old he didn't deserve that. Yeah. Whatever was wrong bodily, um but he just didn't deserve that, you know? It, it was it something could have it it could have been dealt with. Yeah. You know. But I suppose him being him thinking it's a cough, it'll go away. But I it, it was a massive heart attack. And um I don't know. But I wasn't dealing with it very well, Kurt. I was laying on the sofa, breaking down, I felt numb, I couldn't move, I couldn't eat. I've got kids running about me that I didn't really notice. And um yeah, I mean, I, I got up, I did, I did bits and bobs, but I, the sofa was my comfort. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I didn't deal with it at all. My brother and my best friend, yeah, he's, uh, missed, I've missed him every day ever since. How do you think you dealt with as a sibling? So, you're trying to comfort your parents with a feeling that you're feeling very different, but as very real. Uh, that's what they're feeling. I don't remember it so much, mate. I don't remember it so much. I I remember going round my parents one weekend, not long after, and seeing my dad in a chair, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and I said, "You're okay, dad," and he just broke down crying. So it must have been quite soon after the event. And I remember giving my mum a hug. Uh, this, yeah, it was it was before the funeral because it's before the news I've got and um, <clears throat> although I wasn't dealing with it myself very well when I was in their presence I sort of beefed up a little bit for for them because I thought and that's you, their son did you acknowledge you were doing that or was that something you did automatically or just... it's just an automatic response it wasn't nothing I've made myself do it's just how how, yeah. how it was how do you think you dealt with it? I mean, as, as uh, looking at it from a bird's eye view, the whole situation, do you think you ever truly got through it? Do you reckon you ever truly grieved for your brother? I think I grieved, definitely grieved, and I grieved enough at the time, but I've carried on grieving ever since because it's someone I miss dearly. Yeah. And, um, yeah, well, you, you got to think, like, you, he was my brother, he was my best friend. We played football together daily, you know, and we, we did things yeah. as a brother, you know, and, um, yeah, it's just sort of taken away from me in an instant. So we, that, that last paragraph ended with saying, it was at this time I found out that I had another brother. Mm. My mum sat me down one day, not long after my brother's funeral, and explained that she had a son the year before I was born, literally a year minus a day. Unfortunately, he caught meningitis and died. Only aged one month. I was gobsmacked. My mum had lived with that her whole life. I had no idea. Yet here she was, years later, mourning another child's passing. I couldn't believe it, my poor mum. But then I started feeling guilty that I was here and he wasn't. How did my mum feel about our birthdays being so close? It was awful. I visit my brother's graves whenever I visit my parents. I often wonder if I would be here if the first son hadn't passed away. Yeah, strong. That's a huge weight to carry on your shoulders. Mm. Do you still feel like that today? Mm. Yeah, I do, but I don't. I don't play on it as much as I used to. Um, 
life is life and I dwelt on it a lot when my mum first told me. I felt don't get look, I, f- I felt bad for my mum that she'd lived with that. It was in a day where she couldn't express herself, you know, the sixties and you couldn't again hang your dirty washing out yeah. on the line, it always been insular and kept quiet. And um I felt pain for my mum that she'd carried this all these years and I didn't even know. Especially, especially the fact that my birthday was one day before his a year on. Yeah. And I went years thinking, how did my mum ever deal with that time of year? How did she deal with my birthday? Yay! To the following day, her son dying. Yeah. I just can't get my head around what she was going through. And I still don't. It's just something that she says she had to deal with, move on from. Um, and I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. And I don't, I don't get how someone can, or someone's mind can operate like that. Yeah. And I don't believe she moved on. There must have been torment. There must have been angst. There must have been all sorts going through her mind. And um, not to be able to talk about it back in the day, again, was destroying because my mum was a happy, loving lady, but could be angry quite quickly. And I saw a lot of me and her as I got older. Triggers. Yeah. You know, there's triggers. And I think that was a major, major trigger for her. And um, Injustice. Where, where's your mind at at this moment? Where, where, when you find this out and you've kind of had time to, to actually think about what has just been said? It was like another morning, you know? It was like another, I'm, I'm mourning again for someone I didn't even know. Yeah. You know, I always thought when I was younger and I've told this to a couple of people and it's kind of like, yeah, right. But I'm, I'm, I, I'm going back to my like teenage years and beyond and before where I thought I had a connection with something and I didn't know what. Yeah. So I, f- I felt a, a presence, peculiar feeling. I had it for years. And um, like someone was looking over my shoulder or someone was in the room, or especially at night time, I could feel a presence. Maybe it's just a mind thing, I don't know. And then my mum tells me that. Yeah. You had a brother born, you was born a year to the day, virtually, to... Your young, your elder brother would have been your elder brother. And I'm like, wow, was that the connection? I don't know. I'm not. I'm. I'm, I'm I don't think I'm a spiritual person, but yeah, you get feelings, you know. Um. So yeah, it it's just it was just one. It just seemed like there was one thing after another at the time. And it was like that. Mm. That the, the book continues with. It keeps coming. A year after my brother passed away, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. I will never forget the day. Tears fell, but it was the, ex- the expression of sheer fear on my wife's face, which has stayed with me to this day. Mm. I had to show strength that as we sat in the consultant's office, I held her and tried to give her encouragement, but I was scared. I have never been so afraid in my life, afraid for my wife and children. Mm. It does not get easier. No, it doesn't. And if you can imagine 
when you see adverts on TV where they're in a consultant's room and they're told they've got cancer and you're, you're, you're distant from that as, as a viewer, you're distant from that. They, there's not a real connection. But when you're actually in that situation, that scenario, and you're told that and you see your especially the life drained from your wife, like, like grey, yeah. the blood drained from the face, it's like disbelief again. And it's the worst case scenario that you didn't want. You didn't want to believe that was going to be what you're facing when you went for the results. But deep down, you had to prepare yourself for it. Yeah. And for, for, I reckon, maybe two seconds, I sat there numb, looking straight straight out, thinking, no way. And then I saw the fear in her face, and I got up and gave her a hug and held her hand and, and whatnot. But um, and the drive home again, trying to be all positive. You know, the the medications come further on. The results are a lot better than they used to be. Trying to be positive, and um, but fear, the fear just stuck. Did you ever take a minute to think about or to understand how you were feeling? Yeah, and I felt selfish about it. I felt selfish that I felt sad and poor me but it wasn't really poor me it was feeling sorry for the situation feeling sorry for her you know wanting and not wanting to feel useless and out of control wanting to wanting to control the situation um making her feel better thinking back now do you still feel selfish for thinking like that but feeling about yourself no i think it's human nature and I don't think you should feel selfish about, you can feel sorry for someone and you can support someone, you can be there for someone, you can give someone encouragement and strength and be their shoulder. But you can also feel a little bit of downtime for you, yeah. you know, and think, yeah, this, this is tough. This is tough on me as well. And there's, there's, I don't think that's selfish. Um at the time, I thought it was. Think about it now, it's not because it is tough for the person, not just having the disease, but tough for the person trying to support as well. Yeah. And that person also needs support. So, any if you're going through a scenario, please do not think that you cannot feel sorry for yourself. Is that, is that the right word, Kurt? Is that feel sorry for yourself or worry for yourself? I don't know, but. Of course you're going to suffer. Yeah. You continue in the book with arrangements were made for treatments, including chemotherapy. Only a couple of months had passed when we were advised that mastectomy would be necessary and cancer was particularly aggressive. She agreed to it, but it wasn't much long after that she had the mastectomy that we were told the cancer had spread to other parts of the body. And whilst it was spreading fast, it was at this point, less than a year after the diagnosis, that she was admitted to the Royal Marston Hospital in London for further analysis and treatment. I remember receiving a phone call one morning from work from one of the nurses who was looking after her. I could tell it in her voice that something wasn't right. She proceeded to tell me that it wasn't good news, to which I replied, my wife is terminally ill, isn't she? The nurse solemnly and quietly said, yes, I'm so sorry. I remember adrenaline rushing through me. I was feeling numb all at once. I dropped the phone on the desk, burying my head in my hands. Everything turned silent. I felt separated from everything around me. Mm. That moment, it's, I can only begin to imagine mm. 
how you're feeling at that point. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's not good. It's far from good, and uh, it's panic. It's devastation. You know, my my colleague and my work friend and my friend in life who I worked with yeah. saw and came into the office, put his hands on my shoulders, gave me a hug and said, you okay? And I told him and even he was shocked. Even he was like, Rick, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Yeah. And he actually picked up the phone, phoned our boss who sent a his car and a driver to me to take me to the Royal Marsden to be with my wife and told me that my time was my time. Because before this, I was travelling to her from the Marsden after work um, to see the wife, make sure the kids are okay, taking the children. Me mum and dad would be babysitting whilst I went up there. Yeah. Um, and um, And now the situation was... This is the beginning of the end. And um, my boss, who was fantastic, just saw it, supported me wholly, and um, said that I would take as long, as, you know, as much time off as I, I wanted. And but my mind was going, no, I've got work. But yeah. I knew, I knew that this was over, way and above work. And so I listened to the advice and um, took the time and uh, spent spent a lot of time in the Royal Marsden Hospital. Did you ever take, again, at this moment, do you ever take time to think about yourself, about your mental health? I was in a bad place, mate. I didn't really think about it. I felt it, but I didn't really think about it. Is that fear of selfishness or just you just felt like you didn't have the time? And you just... Yeah, and I didn't have the energy for it. All my, all my energy was going with um, being there for my wife, being by her side, supporting her, letting her know that we're there. And um, she she was high on morphine. I mean, she was so... I mean, the pain she must have been feeling must have been intense because the amount of morphine that was given her. Yeah. <clears throat> and it spread to the spinal cord and it was going into the brain and this cancer. and. Um, I I was having headaches and migraines with stress and that, but I had to keep marching on. I had to keep being there for her. There you go. There's my 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 loyalty was with her at the time, even though I felt distressed, even though I felt pain, even though I felt sadness and loneliness as well. Even though I had people around me, um, my loyalty was with her. And uh, it was it was hard. It was painful to watch that happen to someone you love, but also feeling the what's the word I'm looking for? Loneliness. Feeling the pain, the angst, the the worry in within yourself as well. Um, it was just it was just tough. Again, the, the, the book continues with it did matter. Um, so I thought I would. Uh, so I thought I would lie beside her and hold her close, hoping that she would feel my comfort through the numbing yeah. being pumped into her. Yeah, exactly. Being able to, I could do. She was moved to a hospice, which was local to us and the family. She had to pick up for a while, whilst was it, this was good to see 
her smiling and being somewhere close to her normal self. It was a great release for us all and for my wife too. We were told this happened sometimes. It wasn't long before the severity of it all sank back in and she deteriorated very quickly. The children and I spent a lot more time at the hospice and at times I would stay over sleeping next to her. We all knew she didn't have much time. She made was made, was made as comfortable and as painful as possible. This is hard for everyone. It was in the August of 2000 when my wife took her last breath in my arms. I can still feel it and even hear it as I write. And then she was gone. My wife's parents were there with me. I can't remember too much other than sitting silently in a chair, completely distant from the world. Whilst we stayed for a while, I remember my mother-in-law grabbing my hand and we comforted each other. Although some things are as clear as day, there are parts that are a blur. It's hard to recollect much else. But I knew I had to get home for my children. I needed to be with them. Mm. Unfortunately, it's the inevitable that's happened. Everyone is hoping for for a recovery. Obviously, even at that stage where you've almost been told it's impossible. Mm. How, how are you dealing with that at that point? How, how are you? Where are you at? I've been through so many emotions um, with this because there was a point when she moved into the hospice where she lifted and she looked almost like her normal self. And it was nice to see, but then quickly deteriorated again. But <clears throat> I've been through an emotional roller coaster with all of this. And um, I, I, was com- I think I just got used to it. Yeah. And um, until that day when she passed, and I held her in my arms, and um, I didn't know she was going to take her last breath at the time. I could hear her struggling. Yeah. And um, and and yes, and then she went, and it was like that's it. Um. Yeah, it's all a bit, it's all a bit foggy, to be honest. I do remember, I mean, that is such a major event that you can't, there's one, there's one thing that's yeah. very clear in my mind. Um, and then the drive home, I just felt as if I needed to be home. And I write in the book, it's the loneliest I've ever felt in my life. And that's true. It's true. I just felt so alone. <coughs> in what way? You'd lost your loved one, you know, you'd lost yeah. your wife and you lost someone you thought you were going to be with for the rest of your life. And I knew I was driving home to my children and people that are gathered there. Uh, but that journey home was just surreal, very quiet. Mm, it was a, it was a sunny day and I remember it being sunny, but I also remember just everything just silent. Yeah. I couldn't, I can't even remember, I'm visualising the drive home now and I can't even remember the engine noise. So it was just surreal, numb, like an out, uh, yeah, like an out of body experience that you're not really there, but you are. And um, arriving home and seeing people on the doorstep because news had filtered through, husband Lord. Um and then the tears there, and then going in and seeing my children. No one had said anything. And I had to, I sat there and pulled them to me and told them, and it was just complete, it was a complete devastation. It was, it was horrible. It was just tears, you know, sitting there holding them, 
they're crying, they're running to their nans and granddads and crying, they don't know where to turn to. And, and that's the thing in all this, you are a father, and now a father to, to five mm. children. Mm. Um, how, how, how are you acknowledging that? How are you dealing with that at the time? For them, as best as I could, as strong as I could, showing them that we don't give up. Understanding their feelings. That first night, that very first night, um, they all slept in my bed. They didn't want to be alone. And it happened on a few occasions. They wanted, they didn't want to be alone. So we all crammed into one bed. And, um, it was just fear. You know, they were scared. And I could feel that. And, um, but for me, inwardly, I was as angry as you could get. Yeah angry as you could get without smashing things up and beating someone up i was i was getting into trouble um, without getting into trouble yeah as angry as you could get someone you know someone could say something wrong and i would not and the worry of getting into a fight concerned me so there was an element of control there but i walked through the church gardens one day, and I physically said to the church, it sounds daft, but I physically said to the church, I hate you. Yeah. Everything I've been through and you're still punishing me, what have I done wrong? And that's how I looked at it. You know, I didn't see me as a bad person. I didn't see me as a, I never, I wasn't in trouble, you know, and, but all these things were, all these trials kept coming and coming and coming and I didn't know why and I saw this was just the tip of the iceberg. This was it. What happened with my wife was, was it. It couldn't get any worse. And, um, yeah, I physically said to the church that I hated it. I didn't, I didn't really. It's comfort. Yeah, you know, it's just raw emotion. So, I mean, you can argue in a space of a 14-year period, you've gone through three substantial, um, four, you could say, with meeting meeting your wife and and, and getting married and having more kids, um, four substantial life events in what some people don't experience in a full lifetime, and that's just in less than one and a half decades. Mm. Um, you then go on a, a little period of time where things do get a little calmer for you before meeting your current wife. At this point, thinking back, sitting here today, before you meet your current wife there, would you look back at anything that's happened and and put any blame on yourself? Only my attitude. My attitude and lack of understanding, thinking I knew best all the time. And this has been an ongoing issue. Yeah. I've learnt, I've learnt to negate that now. And... Um, understand situations a lot better and um but my lack of understanding or listening was to be detriment to myself as well because i didn't really understand or listen to myself neither yeah so it was not only was it outward it was also inwardly i need i should have taken more time to listen to my children rather than make judgments on situations do you think you were the best dad you could have been would everything that happened? I want to say no, but that would be a lie. At the time, I thought I was the best dad I could be. Um, but but knowing what I know now, I could have been better. 
is that in terms of knowing how things played out mm. or is it's knowing knowing who i am before everything went wrong yeah. to where i am now but looking at the person you were then you'll be happy to say to me today that you did everything you could in that version of rick yeah i think so i think so um I never gave up. I could have quite easily given up work on occasions, but I carried on going. Maybe I should have given up work, Kurt. Maybe I should have given up work and uh, concentrated more on home life rather than have people looking up, the school looking after the children, uh, rather than having neighbours and family looking after the children. Maybe I should have given up work, but I saw that as my sanity. I saw work as my insanely I saw work as my sanity you know my 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 zone that kept me in place so I'm going to talk about next chapter six which is called approaching the storm all the elements coming together and then it kind of begins on the opposite side of things because it begins it, it has that okay this is now where everything now is coming together for you for in a bad way but then it starts with, it's 2015, my wife and I are happily married and have settled into our new home. We are loving life and for the first time in years I felt normal. I found a new career, I was now a warehouse manager dealing with the usual challenges of the position brings and celebrating successes along the way. Everything was going great. I was happy and laughing so much more than ever before. In fact, I was feeling my old self again. Don't get me wrong, I had a few episodes where there were undercurrents of negative vibes, so to speak, <coughs> but my wife's aura is all about keeping cool, thinking before you speak, understanding the situation. Don't make any snap decisions or judgments, and definitely no aggression. Mm-hmm. She taught me to take a second to breathe and time to reflect. Mm-hmm. As I said, things were great. My new boss and I were getting off famously and swapping ideas. We interacted, and I was basically left alone to run the warehouse. I was in a good place. But this is me we're talking about again. Something was sneaking up on me. Something that would shake me to my bones. Hmm. And this is ultimately where the previous 20 years of your life falls out. It's funny, isn't it? It's um, ironic that you're in the best place of your life with a very loving person who can see you for who you are who can open you up and make you see the world in a better place as a as a better person and that you you're not really this angry and I I, I still had anger problems but I still shouted and hollered but she would pull me in and when when you said that last line about shaking to my bones I tingled a little bit because it it brings back it brings back a lot of memories and um, I've been in my most relaxed moment in life was probably the moment depression needed. It needed me to be relaxed. It needed me to be open, exposed. And that's how I look. And that's what I said earlier in the discussion that I saw depression as an entity an alien form and it it was attacking me it was hurting me over years and years and years but I wasn't succumbing too much I was fighting something I didn't realize it was depression I, I was fighting something I was fighting life 
I wasn't going to give up. I was going to keep marching on because that's what we do. Yeah. But all that trouble, all that fight I was going through, through different scenarios, to end up in the most happiest place I've been in yeah. life in many a year, for them to fall. And that's the moment I spoke about earlier, the drive to work, the collapse, the email to the boss. And it came out of, I wouldn't say nowhere, but it just came out. It was just there. And this is depression exposing me, depression saying, here I am. Now you're in trouble. And what was that like? Frightening. Frightening. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. I dealt with divorce. I dealt with death. I dealt with all sorts of things. But I didn't know what to do with this. I didn't have a clue. And in those minutes I sat in the car crying and then gathering myself and watching the sunrise, in those minutes, the massive realisation that hit me that I was in trouble came as a shock because I felt good. Yeah. But I'd forgotten that I was still suffering. I was still remembering and being angry about being left. I was still remembering my brother passing and being angry about that. I was still remembering my wife passing away and being angry about that and missing her and feeling sorry for my children and feeling sorry for my mum and dad and not being what I thought was the best dad I could be. Yeah. You know, and it's all blah, 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 and it's all going on, going on, going on. But because I'm in a better place, it didn't really affect me so much, but it did. But I just didn't realise it. It was still going on. Looking back now, would you say that although everything did feel better, substantially better, do you feel there was elements that you could think I should have picked up on that? Yeah, because I felt better, I felt relaxed, but... I was still very angry. Did depression ever think come across your mind at all? Not the fact you were in that you were you had depression. Did it ever think you ever think that you could go, Wow, I've been through a lot, I've really teeth an eye on this? Nah, not until a day or two, maybe maybe two, three days before the actual breakdown. I started feeling useless. Crap. Yeah. I started feeling like I was rubbish. I, I was I was a bad dad, I was a bad husband, even though I wasn't. I was not great at work, you know, I was useless, I was failing. I wasn't failing, I was hitting targets at work. I wasn't failing as a husband or a dad, you know. Um, But I always felt as if I could do better. And I think that's part of it as well. But a couple of days, a few days before that, I felt rumblings of trouble. I felt like it wasn't, I wasn't just sad. And what was your thoughts on that? What was your kind of internal reaction I didn't know how to react I didn't know what it was I didn't I didn't understand depression I didn't understand mental health I didn't know what it was yeah I had no need to understand because it it never occurred to me um and mental health until recently it was never really understood yeah quite a strong stigma yeah around the, uh, so I didn't I didn't really know I, I couldn't say I couldn't say that I was I understood it. I couldn't say that I knew what was going on because I didn't. And um, I'm going to be absolutely honest. But 
I had no idea. I just, I just thought I was angry. Um. So going back, you, you now, we, we spoke about earlier, once you stepped back from work, um, what was your experience from then? So you, you're now at home, you've got a lot more free time mm. on your hands, a lot more time to think yeah, about this and, and, and that. So what, what did you, <coughs> what, what did you do during that time? Not a lot. Moped about. Was there anything you were actively doing to try and make yourself better? No. The only thing I would do was take the dog for long walks. Um, I just fell backwards. I just got more solemn, quiet. Um, yes, I did have activities. I, I would do dinners. I would do stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. But on the whole, it was an effort. But on the whole, um, I was pretty quiet. I was pretty sad. Uh, the feeling of worthlessness that washes over you, the feeling of uselessness that washes over you because you can't cope with work. You can't cope with some life events. Um, the feeling, that feeling just makes the whole scenario worse, you know? And, um, the moment I, the, the day I got sent home was the, which we spoke about earlier. Um, I felt kind of relief on the way home. But then for days and weeks after that, I felt totally useless. And um, I made, made some video diaries about my feelings as well, so I could kind of get them out there, because I didn't want to talk to anybody about them. So I kind of get them out there. But I don't know. I think the hope of counselling, which which was I was hoping was going to be arranged. Yeah. Although I didn't want to do it because I can get through anything because yeah. I'm me, um, I knew it was needed. So I think I was hopeful that the counselling was going to happen. And um, so I needed help because I could feel the fall coming really quick. Yeah. I think I'd held on to the fight for so long that once the break happened, it was a massive fall. Yeah. Instead of a slow fall, it was, it was just a crash. So when you now get to the point of feeling suicidal, is that, do you think that was spurred on by having a lot more free time? Yeah, I think it was, to be honest. But what do you do? What do you do with that free time? You can't go to work because you're in no mindset to do the job. You're... Children at home are going to school. You're worse at work. What would you do with that? I mean, if we sit here quietly now, that was me. Yeah. For hours. And you can just imagine, if if you're in this mindset, you can just imagine what's going through your mind, how it's building, what you're thinking, how you feel about yourself, all your regrets all the angst of everything that's happened to you. And it's all very well people saying, you shouldn't be that way, but you are that way. Yeah. You know, and I hate it when people say, you shouldn't be that way, you should... There's only so much fight someone's got before they break. And is this, during this time, are you waiting for a call from the doctors? Are you seeking help at that point? Is it waiting for the counselling? Yeah. Yeah, doctors was, was the first one. Um, 
which they wanted me to put on depression pills, antidepressants, and I've been on them before and I knew how they affected me. Yeah. They made me worse. Yeah, they make you numb. They make you, they don't make you feel the pain so much, but they make you, for me, they made me, made me numb to the world to the point where I had no feelings. And I wanted to feel something. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I'll write that in the book as well where I, I didn't, I know I mention it and I speak about it that I did not want to take tablets because I wanted to feel what I was feeling. Yeah. And that sounds strange, but let me follow on to, on to that. I wanted to feel the recovery if I was going to recover. And, um, to the detriment of other things, yeah. suicide, suicidal thoughts. Because I thought to myself, if I take pills and I'm feeling, start feeling great, and then I'm told, yeah, you're better, and I've slowly come off them, am I really better? Or was it the pills that are making me better? Yeah. Or was it double whammy? Yes, the pills are helping. Yes, I've helped myself. Take the pills away. I fall. I wanted to feel, and I'm not suggesting people should do this, I wanted to feel the progress. Yeah. And I got worse before I got better. And it was painful. So yeah, waiting for the counts, waiting for the, I didn't, I didn't, I took tablets for a little while, but they did, they made me bad, made me worse. So I stopped. Um, I didn't tell anybody because <laughs> people would worry. Yeah. But I felt myself come back a little bit because I was off them. The counseling I was waiting for, very skeptical about it, but I had to give it a go. And in your book, you do reference that you, you found it. Helpful. I did. I did. I mean, to be fair, I mean, took a couple of sessions. Um, I turned up with the first one, sat outside in the car, itching to turn around and go home. Yeah. It wasn't for me, but it, I had made myself do it. Didn't really enjoy the first session, really. It wasn't, it, it was all about getting to know me and the results of my consultations, etc. And, um, knowing instead of eight sessions or whatever it was, I was going to have 14. Did that, in your mind, give you the severity of how you were? Yeah, that was a wake-up call. You need 14, and then we'll look at it at the end, see if you need more. Yeah. Because of the complexity of everything. And um, I didn't realise I had so much going on. So much going on. I knew I'd been through a lot, but I didn't realise what else was, you know, um, how it was affecting me. So, yeah. Uh, and they're only at an hour session, so 14 hours was was the target. Instead of eight, I think it was six or eight, I can't remember. And, um, yeah, so the second session came along and I forced myself to go in again. And then she mentioned mindfulness, which I'd looked up on and I thought, what a load of rubbish this is. Yeah. And this is me, you know, my own opinion, rubbish, all gobbledygook, just get on with it. But as I got into it, as I started understanding it, I realized how good it was. Yeah. And, being mindful, being mindful of yourself, being mindful of your own actions, your own words, your inner thoughts and your actions and how you react to those inner thoughts. And that sort of struck a chord. I started learning. I started teaching. I started watching YouTube and, and things and yeah. about mindfulness. And, yes, there are, there's a lot of pretense out there, people searching for likes 
on on you know but there is a lot of really good stuff out there and i wanted to train my brain to understand me as a person i wanted to train my brain i wanted i wanted to understand myself rather than letting my mind and my thoughts and my brain just run away so i wanted to take control back and um but i still feel you know i still feel i remember going from one of the counseling sessions up to uh, um downs near me and i I remember it being a foggy day and looking over and seeing this solitary tree in the murk, in the fog, leafless. And um, it, I just sat there staring at it and I thought, that, that's me. That's me in the fog. No, you know, and I don't, I can't feel nothing. I don't recognise anything and I can't see it, my way out of it. And so I took a photo of it. And, um, that's a photo that's in your book. Yeah, yeah, and um, I don't remember the drive home from there. It's funny enough, it's weird. But um, although the cancer was going on, there were still thoughts of suicide, yeah. and even to the extent of planning something. Yeah. When 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 you begin to to comprehend that you're doing that, do you stop yourself? Do you continue? It's sporadic and it's intermittent. I, I'm I'm a survivalist, you know. I don't want to die. Yeah. I want to live forever, you know. Enjoy life, but I wanted to end the pain. I wanted to end it. Did I want to do it, or did depression want to do it? Yeah. So I this, I had to keep telling myself depression wanted me to do it. I didn't want to do it. My mental health, the mental health, whatever was going on in my head, wanted me to do it. So. But I still planned. I'm going taking for the dog for a walk up the woods near me. There, there's a tree that's quite large that stands on a bank. And um, I contemplated doing it there, uh, hanging. And um, I planned it a couple of times. But I fought it. And I think the counselling and finding myself or trying to find myself, the true me, not the projected me. I'm trying to. Was the fight I needed? Yeah. Yeah. Is that does that sound right? Um. I. I. It, it was the thing that stopped me from doing it, and being a survivalist. I was finding myself on this journey, and um, finding out the reasons why I was the way I was. Why depression was there. Why. Why I was feeling worthless and. Um, useless and why I was feeling <sighs> depressed all the time and um, cancer was dragging some stuff out honestly all these stories and more and um, regrets I had missed opportunities I had uh, the the biggest one which I write about in the book as well hope you don't mind me mentioning um, Australia uh, that, that plays on my mind now but it, it doesn't I don't hate it. And much. the Australian story is, is way before anything happens. Yeah, it, it was so insignificant at the time yeah. because I was young. It had really no bearing on me. I did regret at the time not going, but oh well, shrug the shoulders, get on with it. But it was massive. I'd saved a lot of money in a poorly paid job to go and see my grandparents in Australia to see if I'd liked it there with the possibility of moving there. And becoming a, I don't know, a surfer dude, a yeah. beach bum, you know. Um, 
and I met a girl and blew all my money, all my savings that I saved hard for, showing off. And, you know, buying her stuff, treating her stuff, going out, lavish stuff and hiring cars and going restaurants and stuff. And all for the sake of her, for then, once the money's gone to, see you later. To go with it, yeah. Yeah, gone. And I was standing like, damn. Yeah. What have you done? I think that's an important thing to, um, to, to kind of learn from, from that for anyone listening. It's that every life experience can stay with you. Anything you say to someone today or tomorrow, whether it be so insignificant to you, could play on their mind for the rest of their life. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, it doesn't seem much, but it's like, the sliding doors moment, yeah. the film with Gwyneth Paltrow, it's like that, where there's two scenarios. One, you're late for work, you miss the train, and then this scenario happens, and then the other scenario is you hit the train and life carries on as normal, but you miss the train, and all of a sudden you find out all this other stuff is going on, yeah. and life changes completely. And that was me with Australia. And what could have been, what could have been, how could it have been? I might have come back within a week or, you know, a couple of weeks or whatever, a couple of months. But I might have found a life of my time out there and not known any different. You could look at that, yeah, with the, I mean, there's all but one scenario would have been completely different, potentially. Exactly that. You take it, if I've gone to Australia, I wouldn't have met that person, that person, that person. These scenarios wouldn't have happened. Something else might have occurred. I don't know. But. It's the not knowing. I don't wish that I'm, I'm, no, I'm going to lie. I'm going to tell you the truth. I do wish I'd gone. Just for the experience. Because to start with, it was just a, a visit. It wasn't permanent, but it was the potential permanency. Uh, exactly that. Residency. Exactly that. It was all open-minded. It was all a holiday, a break, going to see me down the granddad, and um, I didn't go, and I never saw him again. They passed away. So that's... And a regret, two regrets within one. And Scenario. with everything else that then follows, it's a, it's a pile up. <laughs> of, of that kind of one thing you haven't touched on much is how you spoke to your family about realizing the mental health. So when you kind of admitted to them and not away from your partner, mm. your children, your, your parents, mm. how was that for you initially? Like, what, what was your thoughts about doing that? Okay, so there was friends that would phone me on the way home from work or, or when I'm driving home from work. Yeah. Or they knew when I'm driving home from work, so, so we could have a chat. And um, on my hands free, I went ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and um, But this one friend, and he knows who he is because we had a discussion about it recently, and who would phone up with the same thing every day or every phone call, and they'll be moaning about his job. F in this, F in that, blah, 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 blah. Moan, 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 moan. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going through some stuff here and you don't even know. Yeah. I need to tell you, but I can't. And um, at the end of the conversation, it wouldn't be much about me at all. It'll be him. And he'll go, right, right, right. We've got to catch up to another beer, mate. Uh, I've got to go, I've got to go, I've got to go to work. Yeah, right, mate. Yeah. Yeah, right. Phone goes down, I'm like, thanks for asking about me. 
And that kind of stopped me from telling people about me because I didn't feel like people were interested in me. So I felt kind of soulless. I felt like worthless, yeah. like I mentioned earlier. I wasn't worth the discussion. And since, just to pause there, since you've spoken to the person about that, how how did they feel when, when you said that that's... They found out through the book. Okay. They read the book. And um, he said, why didn't you ever tell me? I said, if you'd stopped for one moment, if if people say they're true friends, they would truly ask about the person. Yeah. Not go, oh, mate, how are you doing? I'd go, yeah, and then go, oh, I'm on my way to work, blah, blah, blah. You'd wait and hear yeah. what the person's got to say. Was I that bad? Yeah, you were, mate. And you still can be, because you still do it now. <laughs> And we do laugh about it, to be honest. But to be fair, it's only a couple of times since. And um, I'll get my say. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is nothing else. So. <laughs> exactly that. So, so something's good, something's good <laughs> come out of it. I'm going to have my say. And um, no, he's, he's been a great mate. And he, he, he was there on the day I found out my wife was terminally ill at work. And he's been there ever since. So I cannot say anything bad about him and I won't say anything bad about him but we we learned that yeah. I needed to talk sometimes and that I didn't open up because I was afraid of what people would say and I felt worthless Was there any element of you being, being afraid that people are going to now be afraid to talk to you, to tell you things because of how you were feeling the, the, the mental state you were in Essentially, oh, turning on eggshells. The kid gloves, yeah, you. yeah, kid gloves and turning on eggshells. Um, yeah, there was an element of that. But what I said to people was just be open. If you want to talk about work, talk about. Especially my work colleagues I was with. Yeah. If you want to talk about work, if you want to chat, chat, talk to me. Be as open and as honest as you can. Don't kid glove me. Yeah, I, I need real life. I don't need pretense. And I deal with that in the book. I deal with that in my life and I deal with that with other people. I hate pretense, you know, because life isn't pretentious. It, it's real. What happens is real. And um, and that's how I wanted it to be. And when you told your children, what was the general reaction? And what was your approach in doing so? I, I can't really remember. I've got to be honest. It, it, but the, the reaction was basically hugs and we love you dad we're so proud of you yeah and yes it was nice to hear but all i wanted was the hug yeah you know because i still had things in my mind about i could have been better better dad even though i was better than i probably thought i was but i could have been better and done things differently but all i wanted was them to understand and give me a hug and that's what I've got. And then as a parent, you can't ask more than that. So you, we've obviously spoken about the, the counselling obviously coming through. Um, I think you would agree with me if I say that still to this day, every day is still a recovery day. Mm. It's about keeping on top of yourself and making mm. sure. Uh, mental health, in my eyes, it's just as important as physical health. If you saw yourself losing your physical health, you would mm. do everything you can to improve it. Yeah. Um, and I think... People, as people now, we should put things in place. If you feel like you're mentally stressing, you have a break and you're still stressed, and it's more than just what you thought it was, clearly. So 
in your book, um, again, just to reference, it is the last reference of the book, page 73, you say, you started to see things a lot clearer. I began to understand that realising the emotions within me was giving me space in my mind to think a little bit more consciously. I even allowed a counsellor to practice some mindful techniques on me, whereas in previous sessions I'd felt stupid and confused. Mm -hmm. The session was different though. For example, one technique was where I had to close my eyes for 60 seconds and concentrate on the darkness of my eyelids, and I became aware of my breathing and my heartbeat. Do you still do that today? Not so much, but I do do um, a quiet... If I, if, I, if I start feeling really stressed and the optimum moment was yesterday at work where I felt completely overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, I literally took five minutes. I said to the lads, I'm just going to go to the toilet, I'll be back in two minutes, literally, carry on. Went to the toilet, sat in the cubicle, shut my eyes and breathe. Yeah. Today we'll finish and we will go home. And that's all I needed. And got back on it, and I was right. It was fine. And it was all okay there. Yeah. You're now, you are now helping people on, on, on social media. Yeah. Reach out. Yeah. Um, and obviously you do tell them that you're not a professional. We have specified this. The book specifies that. And you are just telling them pure life experiences. Yeah. Um, which is again, which they can learn about in the book. Yeah. Um, what sort of feedback do you get? I've had when I first started, I got hit with some trolls and brilliant. Yeah. Uh, but also in, in that, I've got hit with some really nice comments as well. So, go back to the, the, the trolls and the bullying part. Yeah. You've, you've gone through everything you've gone through, which initially, start, initially started with the bullying. You're now through it, and it's almost like the next phase starts with the bullying. Brilliant. How do you deal with that differently now as an adult? Also, you, you are an adult, and it's now a different kind of bullying. It's not them to your face as you used to. It's now them behind a computer screen or, 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 or anywhere, and maybe direct message you, uh, but mm-hmm. how do you deal yeah, with that now? Yeah. It's exactly what we said earlier, isn't it? It's, it's just a different form now. Yeah. And people can be a lot braver because they're on a keyboard or they're on their phone, so they can be a lot braver. And I got called all sorts, and I hope you don't mind me telling, no, telling what I got called. I got called a dirty paedophile. I got called the C word. I got called filth. I got, got called um, a child chaser. I got called all sorts. All sorts of stuff. And um, I would fight back. I'd argue back stupidly, which fueled their fire. They loved it. Until one day on my Instagram, I think I had about 85, 100 followers. I was looking I was, one Saturday night and I turned my phone on and looked and I thought, what else is going on? And my, my Instagram account was going up in front of my eyes. I'm like, what's going on here? And then I got a direct message, you're famous. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I've done nothing. And um, it turns out I'd ended up on the True News, True Geordie podcast thing he does yeah. about my Instagram account. And I truly today believe, still believe that a troll put me to him to out me. And yes, I had the big taken out of me a little bit because some of the photos I put up. Trying to be arty with me weight training and stuff, and it, yeah, they were a bit funny. I've taken them down now. And um, but at the end of the at the end of my little segment, which is part of a larger segment, he did say that I'm doing something really good. Yeah. You know, it, and he said some really nice things about me, and I, I gained a lot of followers through that. And in fact, I gained half a dozen people to just ask for help. Yeah. 
can I talk to you? And it, it, they ranged from all sorts of things, which I'm not going to talk about. And in the book, we, you have got some messages in there that people have sent yeah. through. Um, more, more after the recovery side that even whether the advice you gave them, they've taken on board or, um, or that they kind of listen to what you've said, experience what they've experienced and they come back now and they do feel better. For you, do you, is there the satisfaction of knowing that, okay, I went through this horrendously and now I'm helping others get through it too? I like the idea that people can turn to somebody, find a little bit of hope, a little bit of light, and then progress. I don't take any glory out of it. I I, I like, it's a, it is a feel-good factor, I'm not going to lie. It's a feel-good factor that someone says to you, thank you so much for your help. And I feel good that I've helped somebody. Yeah. I don't take anything financial out of it. I don't take, I don't ask for anything financial out of it. It's all in my own time because I want to help. And I'm not going to BS my way through life thinking I'm doing it for any other reason. I just want to help. Yeah. And, you know, for people to come to me and say what they say now is, is, is such a feel good factor for me. And it encourages me to keep going, to keep helping and to keep recognizing changes within me and to keep recovering. Because there's no doubt about it. You don't, I don't think you actually ever recover fully. There will be slips, trips and falls. Yeah. You're, you're, you've got to be your own personal God, basically. You've got to look after yourself. You've got to be your own personal Jesus as a song there. Um, Depeche Mode, I think, your own personal Jesus. Um, and I, you've got to be mindful of yourself. So you've got to take care of yourself. If, if you can't take care, look, the truth of the fact, if you can't take care of yourself, you can't look after other people, including your loved ones. Yeah. You can't. So you've got to take care of yourself. And the first step is talking, so be it. And it should be. And is that your ultimate goal with the book? Yeah. Get people to open up. Get people to realize that. <laughs> What I went through there was bad enough. Yeah. There's people going through worse than that. You know, and um, we've all got to realise that. And as a person, you've got to realise that as well. And But you've also got to realise there is help out there. There's all sorts of helplines. You've got Mind, you've got the Samaritans, you know, you've got the Salvation Army, you've got home help, you've got people around you that you might not consider that way inclined, but yeah. they have this side of them you don't know. Get to know your friends, get to know your colleagues, get to know people, because one day you might need them. Earlier on, we did mention about the, uh, the videos after the counselling. Um, they, you, you've kind of created a mini-series, which is on YouTube and the website. Yeah. Kind of <clears throat> um, and what was your intention in releasing those? <laughs> My intention was to keep them. <laughs> I, I wanted, I, I mean, they're a few years old now. I mean, they were sat on the sofa where, you know, and... W- with a handheld mobile phone. So the intention wasn't for quality, um, of filming. It, you know, it was an mo- old mobile phone. It was a bit joggy and jittery for my own self-awareness to carry on seeing how far I've come. You know, the video diaries were there for my own self. No one's seen them. My wife's not seen them. Nobody's seen them at all. And I think they're about what are they now? 
six years old, five, six years old, maybe these videos. And they were done in a short period of time. Yeah. And I said in one of the videos, although I've done, as I came out towards the end, I've, I've done one of not done recovery and about putting a plaster over your mind isn't good enough, blah, blah, blah. But what I said was that way before those videos started, I was in a bad place. And then even though I finished doing the videos because I was recovered or I was in recovery and felt better, I still knew there was going to be issues. But I've not done video diaries since then. Yeah. I did do a, a whole YouTube thing on mental health issues, videos, um, all, all sorts of different scenarios in that. But then I had a crash. I felt they wasn't working. They wasn't being seen. So I felt useless again. Yeah. So I deleted the whole lot. You removed the situation away, so you didn't have those. Didn't have that there. So about 33 videos, I think I've done. And although I was getting some good responses, not a, not a lot, there were some good responses. I thought this ain't working. It's not getting out there. People are not seeing it. So instead of looking at ways of getting it out there, I thought get rid of it. And I regret it that instantly, instantly yeah. because you can't recover them. And um, so I left it a, a couple of years and started again. And I thought, how can I impact? How can I get it out there? How can I impact? I've done the book. What can I relate to the book? And I thought, the only thing I've got is my diaries. Do I put, and I toyed with it for weeks. And I thought, do I do it? Do I do it? Do I do it? Will people believe me? Yeah. Because there are a lot of people out there faking it. And that's the honest truth of it. There are people out there faking it and it's not nice. One or two have been called out, but I didn't want to be part of that because this is, I wanted, I didn't want to put things in people's mind that doubted me. So everything that I do is truthful. Everything I do is for the good. So I thought, no, I'm going, I'm going to bite the bullet. I'm going to put them on. And I've done them bit by bit and I, they're not great videos visually. I think they are great as far as the message is concerned. Yeah. I've edited them right down. I mean, they're only two, two, three minutes long. I think one of them's only about 40 seconds long. So, I mean, they're not hard watches. Then they're, they're not, they, they don't drag out, but they get the message across. Yeah. And, um, and, I wanted to get the message out through the book and through the YouTube as well. I I have only one goal out of all this, and that is to help people understand the situation and get them to talk. So before before we end the podcast, there's two questions I want to ask you. Um, what for you was the lowest moment you went through in the in the depression state? So in the depression state, yeah. you would find it weird that I wouldn't say it was planning suicide because I think I was at my most alert going through that. My lowest point, I would say, is twofold. I would say equally the morning drive to work. Yeah. That day when I completely broke down. And the moment when I thought, sincerely thought that 
there was no end. I I couldn't see a way out. And that was a couple of days after being sent home. And I actually say that in one of the videos. And now, the last one is, sitting here today, mm. how are you feeling? It's been emotional, this, to be honest. Um, I felt I felt some emotions rise, which I controlled. But how I feel today, I feel I feel good. I feel happy that we're doing this. I feel happy that it's that hopefully people will get the message. And there's a constant message throughout this, and that is talk. Yeah. Find someone. Know know the people around you. Get to know more people. Um. It's been because I do this stall a little bit. It's because sometimes it's tough to talk about things. I don't like self praise. I don't self praise myself. Yeah. I'm very self critical. Maybe that's another downfall I've got. I'm very self critical, which is probably why I, I try and set high standards. Um, and when I don't reach them, maybe that's why I get a bit upset sometimes. But doing this today has opened my mind again as a reminder that things have happened. They have happened. They're not happening. They have happened. What is happening is your memory. So, yes, let the memory happen. Understand, understand that it's going to go. That memory is going to go. Yeah. It'll come back later on, but it'll go. Move on. Learn from whatever it is and move on. And that is it. It's all about evolving in life, becoming better, becoming stronger, becoming whatever. It's not about dissolving into nothing. It's about evolving. So my message to myself and to you all out there is you will not forget your past, no matter what anybody says. But let the past happen. Let your memory happen. Learn from that memory. Move on. Because you're worth it. Rick, thank you for coming on the podcast. Welcome. Enjoyed it.